And welcome to Battle of the Atom, your weekly X-Men podcast where I, Zach Jenkins, and my uh, co-host, Adam Reck, go through three X-Men stories and put them on our big list of the best X-Men stories of all time. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Zach? You know what? I'm doing doing real good. (laughs) Definitely uh, better than last week since we're going to pretend like we're not recording a chunk of these in a row. (laughs) It's it's it has not been three minutes since we recorded the last episode. <laughs> no, so if anyone had any input or any comments about the show, we'll get to them and we will take them into consideration. <laughs> but our future selves will do that, That's not right. us right now. That's a very X Men thing to say. <laughs> I mean, look, these timelines can get really confusing. So I wanted to be very clear about what our timeline is. It is record the first episode. Go get some water. Record the second episode. <laughs> see what happens then. Yeah, we'll see if we can uh, make make lightning strike twice here. Yeah, no, it'll work. So uh, we've got three more books that uh, me and Adam kind of put together to talk about. Another mix of old, new, and weird. Yeah, at least I I think one of them's weird. I agree. I agree. So yeah. do we want to jump right into our uh, our first story? I don't think there is any reason not to jump right in to Giant Size X-Men number one. Nice. Second oh Genesis, which is different than what the cover said, and I didn't realize it. The There's cover... a lot of stuff when I just looked back that, you know, I, I was a little bit surprised by. I think I feel like, at least for me, I get a little confused as to what this actually is because of classic X-Men, um, which I think took out some stuff and added pages. Uh, you know, it's... It's interesting to go back. Uh, I think I'm reading this in Essential X-Men. and uh, Oh, me too. All yeah. black and white. It's, yeah, which is fine. Is actually- I, I think I also have a True Believers copy that, that got released with the uh, Resurrection stuff. Um, okay. You know, but, you know, the idea of it being giant size, I was like, wait, this story is only like 30 something pages long. Um. <laughs> um, no, it is 68 sense shattering pages. <laughs> oh, no. It's the census shattering first issue. They're 68 big pages. Okay. okay. I miss, I mixed up my marvelisms on the cover. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, I guess it had some silver age reprints in the back. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny talking about this issue because I, I almost like I'm finding it difficult to talk about it um, and, and take notes on it because it's almost like we take this issue for granted. This issue. Look, it's important. It sets up a lot, and for what it is, it's a good issue. But there's a lot better that comes after Giant Size X-Men number one. Oh, of course. It's it's an important thing. It's not necessarily, you know, the groundbreaking thing. Because for people who aren't aware of the history, this came out in 1975. And X-Men had actually been on a weird hiatus for a while. In 1970 they stopped publishing new issues of the series. The characters still appeared in a couple of guest spots, but everything from, uh, what is it, 
issue 68 to 92, 93. That sounds right. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, it, it's all reprints. All Silver Age reprints. And yeah. this was The Return. And they, they mix it up with some old and new characters. So this is the first appearance of Storm. Yep. Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Colossus. And Thunderbird. Yeah. And, and I feel bad just dropping the and Thunderbird. Because Thunderbird, he's better being Warpath's older brother. Than <laughs> In your defense, he is very, you know, he is uh, the, the character shoved to the farthest of the back on the cover. So, <laughs> you know, he, he's already sort of a backseat um, character right from the beginning. Um, but you bring up a good point, you know, that this issue has a lot of uh, of weight because it's being asked to relaunch uh, one of the core Marvel franchises, which had kind of fallen out of favor. And I got to say, you know, with that task in mind, um, we I don't think we mentioned the creative team here, but Len Wein and Dave Cockrum, they really do a great job. Um, oh, yeah. You know, in a very short period of time, it, the first couple pages of this are such great little quick introductions to these characters that, like I said before, like, I feel like we kind of take this kind of a story for granted because it sets up um, all of the ground for where we're going to go over the next, uh, you know, 16 years with Claremont. Oh yeah. I mean the, there's a reason like this, especially the storm, the nightcrawler and the Colossus intros you get on here. Yeah. Those are very iconic moments for those characters. They take these characters you've never seen and it throws their entire deal into like a two and a half pages at most. Sure. It's uh, Len Wein does such a good job with that. It's it's fantastic. Well, and, and, you know, obviously the adventure that they are on is kind of like, well, let's hit the reset button so that we can have everybody buddy up and then we'll figure out where we're going next issue. Um, so, you know. It is what it is, but those introductions I feel are the most valuable part of that that story. Um, they they set up, you know, a whole new standard for what this book is going to be, and it does it very very well. My my one question when I was reading it again this time was um, Professor X's ability to travel. Um, like, how did he get to all of those places in okay. such a, a quick period of time? Any theories? Uh, so just this week, uh, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the webcomic Waiting for the Trade. Uh, there, yeah. it's, on, it's on Tumblr. There's a guy who does it. We'll link to it in the as mentioned, the notes for this episode. But there is one that came out this week. It's uh, Carol Danvers talking with Professor Xavier about the uh, Blackbird that they use, the, the plane they use for their travel. Yeah. And she's talking about, you know, this is a 10 you know, a $30 million aircraft and it costs $10,000 just to get it off the ground. <laughs> how do you afford that? He's like, well, I have family money. She's like, okay, but how do you afford that? And his answer is, well, I take out life insurance policies on all of my students and those pay off in <laughs> dividends. And with what we learn later in retcons, oh. that works real well for what happens with the, I was gonna say, that. That, that is going to come back up big time uh, later on in the show. Um, but it does make me laugh that he sort of just magically appears, not telepathically, but like physically in person in the wheelchair. Um, you know, I mean, time <laughs> was of the essence. Um, yeah, uh, gotta rescue my students. Let me do a little globe trotting. Um, but yeah, does well, assemble. He does it, Go ahead. He does it in a weird way too, because he goes from Germany to uh, Africa to Canada 
to uh, Russia, picks up Sunfire and Banshee along the way. Oh, it's a oh, weird. Forgot about Sunfire. Yeah. Sunfire, who literally quits on the <laughs> start of one page and rejoins the team at the end of said page. He is a, uh, a, a very good at quitting, uh, but. You know, gotta have that. Sunfire does have a cool costume, though. I'm sure. gonna give it to him. Sunfire lives and breathes based on the fact that he looks cool. He's got this silly mask, but the rest of it's pretty solid. It is a shame, though, that Sunfire doesn't actually get to stick around. Um, because I feel like they could have done some really fun things with him. He does, you know, he, he pops back in here and there. Um, you know, he's the bridge to, like, the Mariko stuff in Japan. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. It, it would have been cool to have him do a little bit more. So, yeah, I mean, I think both of us are kind of dancing around what actually happens in this issue because it's so people know what happens. It's pretty slight, right? I mean, it's like, all right, we're going to go. We're going to beat up the living island and uh, the island that walks like a man. (laughs) And we're going to come home. Um, It's cool how they beat it. Like the weird part when they get on Krakoa, that third chapter in it, because this is still a comic book that's broken up by chapters. Right. Uh, that third part, that's the weirdest part of it where they're fighting like the living crabs on the island or whatever. It's it's whatever. But once the uh, old X-Men and the new X-Men team up and have to fight Krakoa, that's a very dynamic, uh, very dynamic section. And actually one of the cool things, especially when they're doing their big final push to defeat Krakoa, uh, Glennis Wine, her colors on that are just astonishing. It's so good. I've always loved that last uh last page i'm trying to flip to it right now where uh, polaris is using her abilities and shooting uh, yeah polaris and havoc and cyclops in the rain are shooting the island up into the air to uh destroy krakoa i love that scene it's so good oh yeah i mean that the art is fantastic in here i mean uh, cockrum is is uh, we often forget about him you know um, but he had to define these characters right out of the uh, right out of the the gate, and he does such a great job with it. Um, you know, and I, I love that the solution to what are we going to do with this sentient island is well, well, we'll launch it into space. <laughs> I want to be very clear. Chris Claremont came up with that. Oh, really? That was that was a Chris Claremont thing. Yeah, he was working in the editorial offices for Marvel at the time. I think he was writing a few things. I'm not sure. But they were stuck on how they beat it, and that was a Claremont idea. So he was, even though, you know, this is really the start of the Claremont era, and he's not credited on this book, but he was a part of that. Yeah, I'm just flipping over to to issue 94, and it's uh, Claremont writer Len Wein Plotter. So Mm. there's there's definitely a little bit of overlap here. Yep. Uh, So I'd say uh, let's let's rank it. Where do you think it goes on the list? It's better than God Loves Man Kills 2. That's of obvious. Course. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's as good as God Loves Man Kills 1. No. I think that's that's one of the heights of the Claremont run where this is the start of it. And that run does take a few issues to really get going. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of readability, in terms of what I want to go back to, I think I would rather, let, you know, the last episode we, we talked about Wolverine and the X-Men 17. I, I mean, personally, I think I'd rather it's a much more enjoyable uh, read to sit down with Wolverine, the X-Men 17, but I feel like we, we can't maybe just judge it on that. You know, like I, I also have to give major points for the fact that this is a, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting. It doesn't feel like it, but 
um, it's introducing these characters that uh, really form the foundation of where, where the story goes. So I think it's for me, I, I, I put it in number two for right now. I don't think it's better than God loves man kills. Um, but where, where are you putting it? See, I'm, I'm fighting with this okay. because I think I've actually read both of these stories the same number of times. Like I've read them both three or four times each. Yeah. And I, I, what I'm kind of looking at is what story achieves its goal better. Hmm. I like that. And criteria. that's a, that's a tough one to figure out. Like they both pass the going out the door test. They both pass the, if I'm going to lunch by myself, what comic and I can grab one comic, what do I read? I don't know which one I grab. And I think I lean towards the dupe one. Okay. I think I lean towards the dupe one. And that feels so sacrilegious to say. <laughs> I'm okay with that. You know, if only because it, it is uh the waxum issue, uh, it, the Wolverine and the X-Men issue is, uh, you know, it's so over the top and it's playing on, you know, a lot of different history and a lot of Marvel universe stuff. So it, it's definitely broader. Um, if, if you look at all the in jokes, um, uh, I'm okay with putting it at three, uh, or, or yeah, it would be at three on the list right now. Um, but I think giant X-Men has the, the potential to stay up there on the list just f- for the sheer bad. fact of the, uh, of of you know setting up setting it all up uh, it, it does a great job of that yeah okay okay so going in the list at number three giant size x-men number one yeah good the next book we are covering today uh which one do you want to cover i i think it might be good just to uh move right into uh the re- the retcon what do you think <laughs> I, I, uh, okay yeah, what, would you rather do the other to. one no, no, we have to talk about Deadly Genesis. All right, yeah. So Deadly Genesis, this came out for the, was it the 25th anniversary of? No, it was the 30th. Yeah, it's got to be later than that, I think. Um... Yeah, it was It was 2005, because it was, because uh, the Whedon run was filled with the fact that John Cassidy and Joss Whedon were really slow. Right. So they had to fill in a bunch of weird, uh, like the Phoenix End Song and War Song and Deadly Genesis. Yeah, this this definitely takes uh, the weird, um, you know, prize. It's it's an odd one. This is written by Ed Brubaker, mm-hmm. uh, with pencils and layouts by uh, Trevor Harsine. Finishes by Scott Hanna. Yep. Inks by Scott Hanna, Chris Justice, Mike Perkins, and Nelson. And it has backup stories at the end of each issue by Pete Woods. With colors by uh, Val Staples and uh, Brad Anderson. And if I'm not mistaken, all the covers are uh, Silvestri, right? Yeah, they're Silvestri covers. Yeah. I keep forgetting Silvestri's been just doing X-Men stuff forever. Sure. Yeah, comes on, comes back to new X-Men, does does that whole arc. Uh, he's amazing. Love that guy. We've got to talk about Deadly Genesis. It's not good, right? Like, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Vulcan's Vulcan sucks. <laughs> I'm gonna Vulcan. surprise you here. I I, th- I think this this opinion may shock you, but I, first I I think um, I I talked about this um, in the in the last episode about you know my different continuity gaps. I'd never read this before before we talked about that we were, that we were going to talk about it okay. on the show. So okay. I, I came into this fresh, um, with the anticipation that I was going to absolutely 100% despise this story. And mm-hmm. I got to say, I did not hate it 
as much as I thought I was going to hate it. I know that's damning praise, but like, it's not as awful as I anticipated it being. So maybe I, can you walk me through like you, you seem to have a, a much more negative opinion about this story. Well, I think you're bringing up something that's important. This is still an Ed Brubaker comic. Sure. Ed Brubaker is pretty good at writing comic books. Yeah. He really is. Uh, the issue I have with this comic, one, I think Vulcan's a turd. Absolutely. I don't think Vulcan works as a character you very well. Like, he, he makes me wish that Adam X the Extreme was canonically a third Summers brother. Can you imagine Deadly Genesis, but instead of Vulcan, <laughs> it was Adam X? That would that make would, it so much better. That would have made for I, a really great that. movie. Oh, man. Um, well, you're highlighting the core dastardly problem with this is just that character. Um, I honestly don't have a huge issue with the premise of the series. Um, and I Professor can talk X a little bit about why. Dude. Professor but, X cannot be great. Yeah, I'm yeah, cool with that. But Vulcan as a character is, um, you know, I think I talked in the last episode about some of my my pet peeves with, with different comics tropes and Vulcan is another one of those pet peeves, which is, and you could correct me if, if you think differently, but he's basically Superman. Um, yeah. He, he doesn't have a true defined power set. He's there in all his glory with his Cape and uh, you know, he's, he's there to serve the plot uh, and, and the retcon. And I just wish that that character would have been something cool um because it it really opens it up for something to be really interesting there and then it's not yeah it's not the none like i know there's people who like darwin i don't like darwin i think i don't think darwin's a great character i think he doesn't work here petra and sway are footnotes on Mm. x-men continuity and the entire the entire story just gets resolved like they they hit the end of issue five and they're like oh shoot it's page 18 uh now vulcan <laughs> flies into space right yeah that's how it ends yeah and that sets up like war of kings which <laughs> is pretty good <laughs> like it's not the best cosmic marvel thing but it's pretty good yeah but it it just the whole story is a whole lot of nothing it does a lot of weird damaging retconny stuff it ties up a very long running plot point unsatisfyingly it just no one comes out of this story in a place that makes me want to continue reading about them Mm. and i think that's the that's the core problem with this to me is i don't after this i don't really want to see what happens with professor x i don't want to see where the x-men are going from this i don't care about vulcan hating the mad emperor to ken <laughs> there is a real i'll agree with that there's a real negativity to um you know where we want these characters to be and where they end up um i i think coming into this free of its you know uh, place and continuity just just coming into it fresh i thought at the very least it was an interesting premise that we have a writer who's going to come in and challenge the, the idea of Xavier as um, the recruiter for child soldiers. Um, I think that that on its own and how it's done in the book, it's not a a bad idea. I, you know, like we've had so many examples over the years of um, this, this character, professor X really kind of, in so many morally gray um, areas that 
I, I don't, I don't mind that they're going to this place with the character, but I don't think that it's meaningful. Um, you know, at the end of the day, in terms of this is not a what if story, this is an incontinuity story and you're still expected to care, like you said, about the further adventures of this person who's now, you know, been incriminated here. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can do retcons and change established history like that. I think Brubaker has done that probably more successfully than anyone else with like the Winter Soldier. Mm -hmm. He's he's good at that stuff. This was just a huge miss for me. And I think it's uh, the issues I have structurally with the story are all the more confounded by what it does to the characters and the bad place that it leaves them. Mm. I I think there is a weird, like, there's a meanness to this story. Yeah. It's like, oh, look at that. Banshee just dies for no reason. Ugh. Banshee gets just killed in this. And it's just, hey, look how bad Vulcan is. And no, Banshee wasn't doing anything. <laughs> right. There's really no reason for X. Banshee to die at that part of the story either. Um, you know, I, I, having not read it before, I really liked especially the first half of the book. Um, you know, I, I liked the sort of mystery of the visions that were developing around the characters. Um, I did not like that Banshee just, you know, sort of randomly bit it, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. I did like the backup stories. You know, I liked being introduced to these characters, but um, I'm going to agree with you that the payoff for all of that is lackluster. Um, you know, it, it and it, I think Morrison's run has a, a tinge of that meanness too, um, especially when you get to the whole Magneto flip. Um, but you feel that here a little bit. Yep. So I, I think I think we talked it enough. Let's where do where do you think it ranks? Do you think that the retcon to Giant Size X Men number one is better than Giant Size X Men number no, one? No, absolutely. No, not. it is not. No, and it I, is absolutely not. And uh, I, but on the flip side, I do not think that it is as horrendous and as as flat as uh, God Loves Man Kills Two. Um, which... Oh, it's a be- it's a better sequel, comic. Yeah. To a classic comic. Yeah. So. I'd say that puts it in at number four on our list. Deadly Genesis. Yeah, that, that'll definitely get pushed down. <laughs> it's not it. Yeah, we, we got more comics to add. And we'll we'll see where this next one goes. Uh, the last book we have for today is the second ever X-Men original graphic novel, which it's bizarre to me that there's only been two. That is a little strange, isn't it? I mean, I guess yeah. if you don't count New Mutants, right? True. Okay, maybe third. Well, does that but count? It's not. It's not it, X-Men. That's the first ever New Mutants graphic that's, novel. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we're talking about X-Men: No More Humans by Mike Carey and Salvador La Roca. Hmm. And uh, did Salvador do all the art on this? Uh, no, Justin Ponzer did most of the color art with Matt Miller, Jeremy Cox, and Guru EFX. Okay. Uh, doing some assists. Now, I this this uh, came out as I was really getting back into X-Men comics. This is something that I actually, you know, I pre-ordered. I got it. I'm a big Mike Carey fan. Mm-hmm. I think he's done a lot of good stuff with the X-Men. Like when we rank Supernovas, it's going to go I'm going to I'm going to push for that to go high cuz <laughs> I think Mike Carey does a great job with X-Men. And Salvador La Roca has been a like He's been around and doing X-Men stuff for a while. Like, he did a bunch of stuff with Claremont on early Extreme X-Men, and it looks good. Sure. 
Yeah, I think all the covers um, for God Loves Man Kills were LaRocca as well. Uh, two? Yeah, they may have been. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure on that. I'd have to go back and look. But uh, No More Humans is a weird story. Oh, man. Um, do you like this book? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is the most, like, the mixed... I'll tell you what I like about this book. Okay. I like a good chunk in this book. I like how this book is not afraid of continuity. This, you know, this is a standalone graphic novel. Mm -hmm. This is a standalone graphic novel that can only happen in between like a span of three different issues. That's true. Of the Bendis era Mm X-Men. It's so specific. Like it is uh, all new X-Factor Pietro's in it, but Magneto is not on the Bendis X-Men right now. And he's wearing his Cullen Bun black suit. Uh, but the kids are with the new X-Men or the new X-Men kids are with Cyclops. Now it's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We're post battle of the atom here because we have uh, rays. Um, oh yeah. We have rays rays. Mm, rays rays. I think is a huge part of why I'm not a big fan of this book. Rays um, doesn't work. Yeah. No, you know, it's, it's one of those characters that, and, uh, you know, we'll get to this when we talk about Battle of the Atom, but he's the character that's, you know, a, a side character. Um, and to make him the main villain of this book, I'm not really sold on his motivations. I'm not super sold on uh, his actions. Um, and the the conflict that's developed in this book is kind of convoluted to the point where you're not, I, at least for me reading it, I'm not super sure, like, uh, you know, what what's needs to be resolved here? Uh, you know, <laughs> well, to clarify it for people who may not have read this, because I don't think this did incredibly well in sales. Yeah. Uh, but Ray's works with some human scientists to shunt all of the humans in the world into a pocket dimension and then bring all of the mutants from various dimensions to the lawn of the X mansion. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the I guess the core thing is, hey, there's no more humans. We should probably fix that because now there's a bunch of refugee mutants on the lawn of the X mansion because that worked so well yeah. the last time they did that. <laughs> and also there's a bunch of the Brotherhood from different eras, which doesn't super work. But then uh, there's also Strongman Blob yeah, wearing his like <laughs> leopard print leotard and his... That, curly Q mustache. And I got to say that that was, um, that was another thing where, okay, I love, I love the premise that, okay, we're going to depopulate the world of humans so that the world can be populated with the extra dimensional versions of mutants from all around, you know, every timeline, mm-hmm. whatever that, that opens up a lot of fun. And, um, you know, these are not, as fun as like the future X-Men or the future brotherhood that we got no. in battle. Um, they're pretty uh, tame. Um, yeah. For lack of a better word. So I, I think the stuff that does work in this one, I think Salvador LaRocca's art is very good. It is. I, agree. I, I think he does a great job in this. I think Mike Carey does real good job with the character of triage mm-hmm. uh, triage, excuse me, uh, who was a Bendis character who just, he was new, so he hadn't had a huge amount of time to develop. So I think that stuff works. What doesn't is Ray's, and I hate the ending to this book. 
Uh, are you pointing specifically to the Phoenix stuff? Uh, yeah, the Phoenix just shows up and then young Jean Grey, who this is the core part of her solo book right now. Mm -hmm. She controls the Phoenix and they just snap their fingers and Phoenix fix everything because this is a original graphic novel. So it can't change anything. <laughs> no, it can't do anything. I was so it just yeah, happens. and I, I think you actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you actually uh, tweeted hopeless about this recently because the core premise of and I, I'm very much enjoying the new Jean Grey solo. Um, yeah, I, you know, it may not be everybody's favorite. Uh, I don't know why hopeless seems to be so divisive to some people, but I'm enjoying it a lot. I, I love the idea of Jean just kind of like randomly partnering with people um, in a, in a hope to develop some sort of defense strategy against Phoenix. But here she's just like, Hey, let me, uh, high five with the Phoenix and we'll fix this thing. Okay. And, uh, it, it definitely lowers the stakes uh, of the story. Yeah. This is, this is a very middle of the road, uh, book for me. I think, I think that if this was an arc of a series, it may have felt a little bit cleaner because mm -hmm. it would have had a bit of a different pacing like this has a three-act structure which you know i mean that's standard storytelling but with comics you break it up into like a five or six act thing and it lets you hit important beats a bit more sure and i think i think the you know there's three big beats in this it's figuring out what happened it's saving nightcrawler and preparing for the next steps and it's the phoenix ending mm -hmm. Those are the three big things that happen here. And there's so much space in between them that I don't think enough happens in between to well, there's a lot make of, something happen. Uh, and this, this is something that happens in, in battle as well. There's a lot of regrouping, uh, yes. sort of collecting our thoughts and, and talking through things. And I, I do think, you know, and I, I certainly don't want to trash this because it's it's an accomplishment just to, to write something at, at the of this length and um, to create this standalone story that can't really affect long-term continuity, but still has to involve all these characters. Um, but I do think that there might have been an, an opportunity missed here. Um, you know, if God Loves Man Kills was the original graphic novel that dealt with um, you know, religious persecution, racism. It had some some larger uh, sociological topics that it wanted to tackle. Um, there's a great opportunity here to talk about refugee crisis. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's timely. And yet that sort of falls really into the background as just, okay, well, it's it's more of an annoyance um, to our main characters than it is something that they need to deal with on a, a fundamental level. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just wishful thinking that maybe that could have been, uh, pumped up a little bit more. Yeah. This is a weird book. It is. I don't, so I'm, I'm looking at ranking this. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's as good as giant size. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Agreed. I do think it's better than God loves man kills too. Absolutely. Cause it's not, bad this has redeeming qualities to it it's got stuff that does work because mike carey knows how to make the x-men work i agree um so i guess are, are we how do you feel about it against deadly genesis because you you're you're more optimistic about deadly genesis than i am so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that i i think i would put deadly genesis higher only because it has more impact um we may not like the impact um, we may not like the, uh, the drastic steps that Brubreaker is taking in that story, but this is very, you know, no more readings really is, um, you know, you don't have to read it. Um, 
you know, you could go through the Bendis era and not touch this and you'd be fine because it really doesn't add to the Ray's story. It doesn't add to the future brotherhood story. It doesn't change anything for any of the teams. Um, so, but at the same time, like it, it's, it makes for an enjoyable read to a certain extent as well. Like it's, it's not bad. Um, but I, I feel like by pissing us off, maybe uh, deadly Genesis has uh, maybe a little more merit. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I think you're right. Just because I can, I can go back and I know what happens beat by beat in deadly Genesis. No more humans. I have to flip through and be like, Oh wait, that, that did mm. happen. Like, there's a reason why it took me four issues to the Jean Grey book to say, wait a minute, didn't she have the Phoenix Force once? Right. And that should be a big deal, and it's not. No. And that kind of stuff is what makes No More Humans not the best. And I think I think that's fair to drop it in our number five spot, X-Men No More Humans. Sounds good to me. And that sounds like we've got a three up on the list uh, for uh, this week. Not so bad. that would uh, wrap it up. Uh, you can find everything about Battle of the Atom at my website, XavierFiles.com. That's also where I put up weekly articles every Thursday about a different X-Men character. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at XavierFiles. And everything that uh, I get to do with this website, everything that happens, uh, gets supported from uh, our Patreon at XavierFiles.com slash Patreon for as little as a dollar a week. A week. I'm sorry. You can pay a dollar a week uh, if you want. Look, I ain't going to say anything. But for a dollar a month, you can get privileges that'll get you, uh, you know, cutting in the line for characters. I just had someone do that this week, and I've got a character that I'm now super excited about writing that I had way down on my list. So it's fun. It's like a two year wait period right now for any new requests. So it's a. Uh, it'll be cool if you want to do that or anything else. We're going to be revamping it to add some rewards specifically towards Battle of the Atom. So that'll be uh, that'll be fun. Uh, Adam, where can people find you online? Uh, as always, you can find me at uh, Arthur Stacy on Twitter. And then um, you can head over to adamrecht.tumblr.com. And uh, that has all of the new artwork for Bish and Jubes uh, when I get around to making them. And then anything else that I'm drawing uh, usually gets put up there. Um, so that's where you can find me. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's good. So Adam, I will uh, see you next week. We'll talk, we'll talk some more X-Men. We got, we got some fun stuff coming up next. Absolutely. I'm excited. All right. Looking forward to All it. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Get it!